Well, as David mentioned, we're continuing our study through the book of Acts. We're going to finish out chapter 22 and jump into just the beginning of chapter 23. But let's give a little context and, and a bit of a recap if you weren't with us last week. Paul got to Jerusalem. And as Paul got to Jerusalem, he got to share his testimony. And we looked at these three T's, right, that could represent the different parts of your testimony. That a testimony starts with tragedy. It's your life before Christ. All of your conduct, no matter how much it seems like it accomplished things, if it didn't have Christ in your story, it was a tragedy. Because we exist, we live for him. But then came this transformation in the life of Paul on the road to Damascus, where the Lord knocked him, knocked him off his horse, the Lord blinded him, the Lord spoke to him and called him, and he was a different man when he arrived to Damascus. That conversion part of all of our stories, when we gave our life to Jesus, he gave us a new heart, put a new spirit within us, and we were now a new creation in Christ. And then came the triumph. This is that commission by Christ, that calling he has on your life, and the victory of a life in Jesus that we get to live and they listened to Paul, and they heard his testimony until he got to this one word, Gentiles. And when he said, the Lord has called me to go to the Gentiles, the people tore their clothes, they threw up dust in the air, they started yelling chaotically, and they all charged Paul and began to beat him and try and kill the guy. This is that extreme division that goes on between Jew and Gentile in our text. And the guards come and quickly pull Paul out of the crowd and they continue to be frustrated and angry, and they take him away, and they're going to beat him to find out what happened here. Why exactly are these people freaking out again, Paul? What did you say? Until they find out he's a Roman, and they realize, okay, he needs, he needs a proper trial. We can't do anything. And they take him away, which brings us to where we are this morning. If you're taking notes, you can write down the title, The Lord of the Letdown. But let's jump into chapter 22, beginning at verse 30 says, the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes and the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, 
The commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Lord, as we look at your text, God, the, the words of God, the living, active, powerful truth, God, we pray that you would speak to us. God, we pray that you would humble us. God, we pray that you would search us and know us, show us if there is any wicked way within us, God. Lord, your word, it's a lamp to our feet. It's a, it's a light unto our path. God, so we want to learn from it this morning. We want it to guide us in our steps as we move forward in life. We want to grow in our understanding and our knowledge of you. So, Lord, this morning, I pray that it would be your words that go forth to hearts that are ready to receive with a desire to live in a way that glorifies you. And would you be honored this morning in all that takes place. And all God's people said, amen. Well, what we're looking at in this text today, what we will see in the life of Paul is a significant moment of disappointment. This moment that I'm sure if Paul could have written it up, would have had a very different way for this conversation to go in the midst of this council. And we see a situation that looks like a great opportunity on the outside that turns quickly to even greater opposition. And I wonder, what are some of the disappointments that you may have faced in your life? We all face minor disappointments on a regular basis, right? The espresso machine's down so you don't get the cup of coffee you wanted, or maybe you get rear-ended at work and now you've got to go through insurance and everything else, or your sports team loses the game. And if you're a 49ers fan, your sport team loses a lot of games. So that's a constant disappointment, But then every now and then we run into some more greater disappointments. Some that aren't as as easy as a quick fix, brush it off your shoulder, say there's a game next week. There's some deeper ones that last longer. Like a relationship that's been severed or damaged. Or maybe a dream job that's turned into a nightmare. It could be something like a holiday or a birthday that you had these great expectations for what it was going to be and it turned into a bust. But there was a moment where all of your expectations of what could be, of in your mind what should be and what would be, is hit by this harsh, cold-blooded reality. Your team missed the winning goal or fumbled the ball or missed the shot. Mr. or Mrs. Perfect actually had a lot of skeletons in their closet. Your graduation or your family reunion was canceled due to COVID restrictions. And at the end of it, you find yourself frustrated, disappointed, even crushed, sometimes bitter with this lasting frustration that continues along with you. Now, as much as we want to tell ourselves that there was no escaping it, we couldn't prevent it. That's just life. That's how it happens. I believe Scripture makes clear there is both a preventative 
and a prescription for your disappointment. And it comes from what we're calling the Lord of the letdown, the God who's over all of it. The one who calls the shots, the one who holds you and all of your life in the palm of his hand. You see, if your hope and your expectation is placed in people or circumstances, prepare for disappointment. Time and time again, I promise you, there will be disappointment. It's coming. But when instead you place that same hope and expectation in a God who's unfailing, and a God who is faithful and true, who keeps his promises, who, who doesn't leave you or forsake you, even in desperate times of need, even in the darkest of seasons, even in the valley of the shadow of death, when your hope and expectation is placed in that God, disappointment has no place. There's no room for it. It doesn't exist. But as we dive into our text, we're going to see Paul with expectations, with, with plans and hopes. I'm sure of how this council was going to go different, of how this whole situation in Jerusalem was going to go different. Now, he had one real expectation that he could count on, and that was that chains awaited him. He knew that was coming. That was no surprise to him. But I'm sure he would have hoped that it would have come at a different cost, that there would have been fruit before the chains, that there would have been a revival before the riot. But that's not what we see. Instead, we see him come into town. The people reject him. Gets another opportunity, shares his testimony. The people riot all the more. And now this third time, he's able to come into the council, the Sanhedrin, a group he was a part of. And once again, it will seem like a failed attempt. Now, he gets this opportunity with the council because this commander is a fair-minded man who, who wants the truth and says, we got to figure out what exactly is going on here. And you're a Roman, so you have rights. And even if it's just out of fear for his own neck, the commander says, I'm going to get you a trial. You're going to go before the council. You're going to testify of what you've said, and then they can determine whether you're innocent or guilty. And he appears before the Sanhedrin. This would have been the Jewish Supreme Court of their day. A group that, as I mentioned, Paul was once a member of. As he, as he stood over the council determining what would take place for Stephen, the man we saw stoned to death. These were the authorities that handled all religious matters in their culture. They tried the most serious offenses. They pronounced the most severe of penalties. And it was formed in imitation of the 70 elders appointed by Moses in Numbers chapter 11. So there would be 70 men that were a part of this council when the whole council was there, along with one high priest. In total, 71. And this is the council called together for the hearing of Paul's case. This is what it would have looked like when he stood trial, with men in a semicircle around him, the high priest in front of him and him standing front and center to give an account for what he's done. And we read that as Paul enters in there that he looks earnestly at the council. Possibly, some believe the reason he's looking so earnestly and intently is because of an eye condition we believe that Paul had. 
Do you remember in Galatians when he's, he's writing to the church that he tells them that they would have plucked out their own eyes if they could have and given them to him? Possibly he's in this council and he's looking earnestly because he's seeing if he recognizes any faces. But also due to the fact that Paul wasn't walking into this room intimidated, looking at the ground, looking in his hands, scared of making eye contact. No, he, he stepped into that room with a conviction of the truth and that it mattered. And he wasn't ashamed of it. And so he looks earnestly at these men, desiring that these men would come to salvation as he had. Desiring that their story would look a lot like his. That once a part of the Sanhedrin, a part of this council, but now an ambassador of the gospel of Christ. And so he looks earnestly at them, desiring for them to hear the truth. And he addresses them, men and brethren. Now something interesting to note here, last week we talked about he addressed the crowd that tried to kill him as men and brethren. And what an incredible act that was of just his, his grace towards them and his love towards them. Most scholars think actually that this would have been slightly offensive here when he addresses these men as men and brethren. First and foremost, because this would place him at an equal level with them when he's on trial for being guilty of a religious offense. And as he says, men and brethren, that's as if to say, we're all equals here. Now, is that true? Absolutely, but not in their eyes. But secondly, we also see this as something that would offend them because there was a custom of how you would address this council. Rulers of the people and elders of Israel. But Paul's following a greater ruler. He's following Jesus Christ. And so he addresses them as men and brethren because there's one Lord and Savior and everyone else, we're all equal. And as he addresses them, in this way. No doubt this would have already bugged them. But then he says something else, which is enough cause for them to say, smack that guy on the mouth for what he just said. He says, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Well, what is Paul saying here? He's not claiming some kind of sinless perfection He's not saying, I have never made a mistake in my entire life and I shouldn't be up here. That's not what he's saying. But rather, that he felt no guilt for any reason he would be brought before this council today. That he'd said nothing wrong that deserves any kind of penalty or prison. That everything he said to the, that group out there, he would go out there and say ten times again. Because he was confident it was the truth. And there was a conviction by the Spirit, and he said, I have no guilt. So let me just start this off, guys, by saying there's no guilt or shame for anything I said out there. Now, John MacArthur makes an important note about the conscience that's worth mentioning here, as Paul mentions that he's innocent in his conscience. Conscience does not determine whether actions are morally right or wrong. Paul's conscience at one time had permitted him to persecute Christians, and try and stop those of the way and take women and children and put them in prison. So a conscience will not necessarily pass accurate judgments all of the time. Even Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4 says, For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. 
Even David would pray, right? Search my heart, Lord, and, and show me if there's a wicked way within me. Maybe I feel innocent, and maybe I'm missing something. Those areas that we maybe are blind to. In Scripture, we see that it's possible to have a conscience that is weak, a conscience that is wounded, a conscience that is defiled, a conscience that is evil, even a conscience that is seared. All of these we see in Scripture. However, we also see the Bible commending those with a good conscience, with a blameless conscience, and with a clear conscience. Like we see here in Paul before this council saying, I have a clear conscience before the Lord that I know I have not held back anything. I've said the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth with a love and a desire to see people come to salvation. And what do they tell the men next to him to do? To strike him on the mouth. The actions of the high priest here, they paint a clear picture of Another man put on trial, struck on the mouth for something he said in John 18 when we see Jesus on trial. And what did Jesus say? When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? The same question that Paul's asking here, are you going to strike me for what I just said? Wrongfully so? He says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Paul's getting a little fiery in the council. He's speaking back a little bit, but he's right in this statement because it was contrary to their law. Deuteronomy 25, 12 says, if there is a dispute between men and they come into the court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then, if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in the presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. That it clearly laid out that first they must find him guilty or innocent. They must hear his plea. They must look at the evidence and Paul has barely walked into the room and shared that I'm innocent of what I've done. And before he can even go on, the high priest says, hit that guy on the mouth. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You're going you're gonna to stand here as a counsel and hold me against the law, and you're breaking the law yourselves. He says, God will strike you, Ananias. One commentator says, anyone who behaved as Ananias did Paul knew was bound to come under God's judgment. Paul's words, however, were more prophetic than he realized. Ananias' final days, despite all his scheming and bribes, were lived as a hunted animal and ended at the hands of his own people. God would strike Ananias. Paul may not have realized it in this moment, but he knows you're acting contrary to the law that you're trying to uphold, and there's going to be consequences for that. And then he calls in this term, a whitewashed wall. You can think of times in Scripture people are referred to as a whitewashed tomb. That it looks clean in appearance on the outside, but it's got dead bones on the inside. We see a tendency throughout all the New Testament that the scribes, the Pharisees, even the Sadducees observe rules and traditions, principles and practices. On the outside, they look religious and clean, but they're neglecting purity. 
and sanctification and a true transformation within their heart. And as Jesus clearly taught, purity begins in the heart. That's where it starts. You don't clean the cup on the outside, you clean the inside. And a whitewashed tomb, although may be pleasant to the eye, is still filled with dead bones. Paul calls it as he sees it. This appears to be a religious group, and yet already he's seen, and your hearts are far from the Lord. David Platt says, Religion is a subtly dangerous cover-up for spiritual deadness. That it has this way that we can on the outside follow all of these rules and traditions and ways and seem like we've got it all together. It's a dangerous cover-up that can be so deceiving for a life that is dead on the inside. For a heart that is far from the heart of God. Like these Pharisees that Paul finds himself before. Because the core issue here is that these men are far from the Lord even if they appear to be the righteous law and authority of their day. And the man that they are trying as a guilty party is standing innocent before them because of the blood of Jesus. Standing innocent before them in conscience because he's sharing the whole gospel. And yet the men that are trying him are guilty of holding back. Well, they call him out as he, he declares this curse upon the high priest. And Paul in this moment says, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. And there's a couple thoughts behind this. Why would he not know that's the high priest? Well, once again, we could go back to the theory that many believe he had an eyesight problem. So he may not have even seen who it was that ordered the command. Others believe this is more of Paul letting out more sarcasm in a way, stating here somewhat sarcastically that this man was clearly not seen as the high priest. The way he's acting and having Paul struck contrary to the law is not the kind of actions you would expect of a high priest. And so Paul's saying, well, how was I supposed to know he was the high priest? He just ordered something against the law. But for whatever reason, he acknowledges that it was wrong on his part to, to declare this kind of curse against the high priest. As stated in Exodus 22.8, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. And even in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 20, it says, Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Even though Paul recognizes this is not a good man, this is not a godly man, this is not a man who's following the law in a way that's glorifying God, it wasn't right for me to curse the man that God has placed in this spot of authority. Even if I don't respect his character or his heart, I will respect the position God has placed him in. So he recognizes his fault in that moment. But then it says he perceives something in this moment. And I think there's a lot more than even Luke gives us details about that he's perceiving. But as he scans the room, he, he perceives that some of these men are Pharisees and some of these men are Sadducees, and the room is pretty evenly split. I think another thing Paul is perceiving in this moment, as he's been struck on the mouth for just saying that he has a clean conscience, 
and nobody rising to his defense, nobody standing on the law and saying, hey, that wasn't right. Everybody defending the high priest as Paul speaks back, he perceives something. He looks around and realizes this is not a group that's going to hear my testimony. This is not a group that has a soft heart that wants to receive the truth. This is not a group that is going to receive salvation. And then he looks and he sees a room divided. Pharisees and Sadducees, but all unified, come together, coming against Paul. And so he does something. He decides to use their division over spiritual things like the resurrection, angels and demons against them to cause division amongst the people that are in front of him. And Luke gives you a little detail that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. A helpful detail for Dr. Luke to give us. But the Sadducees were the aristocrats of their time. They represented the the rich and high priestly families. They were in charge of the temple and its services. They were materialistic in their outlook. They didn't believe in life after death or any reward or punishment beyond this life. They denied any existence of angels and demons, and they believed that God was not concerned with what people did. They were politically oriented, supporters of the ruling powers of their time, and wanted nothing to threaten their position and their wealth, which gave them a strong opposition to Jesus and the way of Jesus. Then there's the Pharisees, the most numerous of all the religious groups in their day. They controlled the synagogues and exercised great control over the general population. They saw the way to God as being through obedience to the law, perfection to the law, They affirmed the reality, though, of angels and demons. They had a firm belief in life beyond the grave and resurrection of the body. But the Pharisees opposed Jesus because he had refused to accept the teachings of their oral law. And so both of these groups actively against Jesus and those of Jesus. And Paul in this moment, he turns them against each other. He says, the real reason I'm on trial today is because of the resurrection of the dead. He even brings in a little more juicy note there and says, I'm a Pharisee, I'm the son of a Pharisee. And immediately he's got a group on his side in the council. But he says, I'm being judged because of the resurrection of the dead. And it's true, his entire faith, as he goes on to say in his letters, it's, it's all around the resurrection. If the resurrection didn't take place, we have no hope, we have no salvation. And so he declares, it's ultimately based on the resurrection, why I'm being judged. And immediately, one group says, okay, and another group says, no way. And they begin to turn towards each other and away from Paul. And back and forth, they begin to go. And it says, dissension arose, and there was a loud outcry amongst them. And you might say, Paul has successfully turned the room against itself. Success, it's no longer on him. He's going to get out of this okay. But what may seem like a victory for Paul in this moment, no doubt felt like an incredible failure. A huge, massive disappointment. These are Paul's people. He was one of them. He grew up a Pharisee. He lived 
to be a part of the Sanhedrin. That was his life. He had dedicated everything to it. He knows how these guys think. He's felt what they're feeling. He's lived how they're living. And he so desperately desires that they would find true hope, rest, salvation, peace in Jesus. And they're missing it. And once again, for the third time in Jerusalem, he finds himself in the midst of a crowd that is just a mob, rioting against each other, yelling out, screaming back and forth. And he's taken once again by this commander to the barracks, pulling him out of that room because he doesn't know what will happen in that room. And I'm sure this commander's getting a little frustrated. Like, how many times do I have to take you before a group and then pull you out of that group to save your life? But as we've mentioned time and time again throughout Acts, the gospel divides. This is what it does. It's not a lot of gray area where there's a lot of neutral space where everybody can just get along and coexist. It draws a line in the sand. You're either with him or against him. And if you're not on God's side, then you're at enmity with God. And you're still dead in your sin and lost in your trespasses. And so Paul, when he shares it once again, what happens? It divides even those that are religious. That's what the gospel does. But he finds himself for a day and a half in the barracks. One preacher and commentator, George Morgan, says, Bold, courageous, fearless during the day, the night of loneliness finds the strength spent, and the enemy is never slow to take advantage of that fact. In a moment that felt like failure, in a prison that felt like defeat, I'm sure overwhelmed by disappointment, what do we read God does in this moment while Paul is in prison? God stood by him. God met him in that place. Not to criticize him and come down on him and say, Paul, I really expected better results from a Pharisee, from a part of the Sanhedrin. You really could have held yourself better in there. That's not what the Lord does. He's there to encourage Paul in this moment. God had not cast Paul aside for, for a perceived failed attempt at reaching the Sanhedrin. And he hadn't forgotten about him or lost sight of where Paul was and what was going on in Paul's life because he was in jail. In fact, when John Bunyan, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, was in jail, a man visited him. And when he visited him in jail, this is what he said. Friend, the Lord sent me to you, and I've been looking for you in half the prisons of England. And John replied, I don't think the Lord sent you to me, because if he had, you would have come here first. God knows I've been here for years. No doubt in his mind, God knows exactly where I am. God's not looking for me. God hasn't lost me. He knows I'm in this cell. And in this moment, God knows exactly where Paul is at, and he meets him in that place. He stands by him and encourages him. And God knows exactly where you're at today. And you can come in smiling and cheerful and say hello to people, but God knows where you're at emotionally, spiritually, mentally. The things that maybe nobody else can perceive and seem hidden, God sees and God knows. 
and he still stands by you. He doesn't turn from you. In fact, your weakness and your sin, it actually draws him closer to you. The God who saves, the God who is gentle and lowly at heart. But what we also see here that's interesting is that God didn't provide a way of escape for Paul. Paul's pretty familiar with a prison cell. He's been in there quite a few times. And when he finds himself in there, what typically happens, he's either quickly released or God just opens the doors and he just walks on right out. Right? We've seen this in the book of Acts. Even with Peter, multiple times, doors just swing open or there's an earthquake and there's just, we're just going to walk right out of here. But God doesn't do that here. God does not provide a way of escape. Here, God's not getting Paul out. He's bringing himself in. God had plans this time not to remove Paul from his circumstances, but to meet him in the midst of them and encourage him. You know, we can be so consumed with our circumstances, with our situation at times, that all we're praying for is God to get us out of it. God, I feel like I'm stuck in this prison of doubt or discouragement or depression or failure or this struggle in my life, this pain, this ailment. God, just get me out of it. And there are times God will answer that prayer and God will pull you out of that. But there are other times God will not pull you out of it. He wants to meet you in it. He wants to come to you in that place. Like Peter, he wants to meet you on the water in the midst of the storm. And maybe your situation that you've been praying about for weeks, months, even years, God, get me out of this. God, take this away. God, remove that. And he doesn't want to take you out of it. He wants to meet you in it. There's something he wants to speak to you in that moment. There's something he wants to show you through that process that is too important for you to miss. And he meets Paul here in the midst of his prison cell. And he says, be of good cheer. This could also be translated, take courage or be unafraid, Paul. And Jesus doesn't waste words. He doesn't say be of good cheer because it's just how he starts his conversation. Paul needed to hear that. Paul was not cheerful in this moment. Paul was defeated, discouraged, disappointed. And God says, be of good cheer. Discouraged with where he finds himself. He's discouraged with the results of what just took place. I'm sure he's discouraged thinking about what does the future even hold? Is this it? Is this the end of my story? But better is a prison with the presence of God than a castle cast away from him. And in this moment, God says, no, no, you can be of good cheer, Paul, even in prison. No, you can be of great joy, Paul. You can be unafraid. You can take courage even from your cell, Paul, because I'm with you and I'm for you. And what we're going to see is he's going to readjust and, and shift Paul's understanding of what success actually, actually looks like. Maybe it was that Paul came into this with a totally wrong plan of what success was going to look like. He had the wrong kind of expectations coming in, and that's why he's sitting here disappointed in this moment. He thought people would behave differently. He thought circumstances would go differently. But God says, you can be of good cheer because I'm 
with you. And this wasn't unique to Paul in this moment. Remember what he told the disciples when he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And be encouraged, guys, because I'm going with you. I'm not leaving you. You're not alone. You haven't been abandoned. Even Isaiah 43, verse 2. When we read, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. And even in the midst of a prison cell, God was not going anywhere. He was with Paul. He was for Paul. He had a plan in the midst of this. And he says these words to Paul. He says, you have testified for me in Jerusalem. Now you're going to go testify for me in Rome. What Paul saw as a defeat, God saw as a success, as a victory. You testified for me in Jerusalem. Paul didn't get the, the results he wanted in Jerusalem. But God wasn't surprised by this. God had pull, told Paul long ago, years ago, that he was sending him to the Gentiles. And Paul said, no, 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 to Jerusalem, to the Jews. These are my people. I can relate with them. I understand how they think. I've got this testimony to share. God wasn't surprised by their reaction when Paul shares with him. Paul may have been. Paul was so sure that he had the words they needed to hear and the example they needed to see. And that's often what's tied to our disappointment is pride. That we think we know a better way. We think we have a better plan. And when it hits reality, we begin to question, God, what are you doing? Why didn't you do this differently? Why didn't you take that away? Why didn't you open that door? There's pride there when we think we had a better plan than God. And here, God tells Paul, in the midst of that cell, be of good cheer. You did it. You did exactly what you were supposed to. You testified of me in Jerusalem. That's why I sent you there, and you did it. And now you're going to go to Rome. But we tend to do what Paul did in this moment, right? Placing way too high of an expectation on our circumstance and on people. And we find ourselves disappointed. We didn't get the results we wanted. But don't forget, results are not our department. That's God's department. We plant a seed, we water, but it's God who brings the increase. You cannot save anybody. Let me just take that pressure off you this morning. If you've been feeling weighed down and you've been discouraged because I've been trying to save this person and they won't come to Jesus, let me just tell you, give up now. You will never save anyone. All we do is introduce them to Jesus. An introduction, that's all you have to do. You introduce them to Jesus, he does the work. He brings the results. You plant the seed, you water it, you continue to be there to be a voice of encouragement and truth, and you pray, but it's God who saves. It's God who brings the results. And God says, Paul, you did exactly what you were supposed to. You brought the word. You faithfully shared. I'll do the rest. But not only that, I'm not done with you. You did what you were supposed to, and I've got more work for you. And for a faithful servant like Paul, those are sweet words to hear. 
Well done, my good and faithful servant. Keep going. Keep running your race. I've got more in store for you up ahead. I'm not finished with you yet. And he readjusts Paul's view of what success actually is. He corrects where Paul's expectations might have been skewed. And he says, don't, don't look at that as a failure. And don't look back at your life and see this list of, I made a mistake there, I didn't do that well, I could have done this better. And you spoke, you testified, well done. Now look forward, here's what I have for you next. Don't keep looking back at, I wish I could have had another word. I wish that would have gone differently. I just wish one of those guys would have listened to me. Look forward, I'm taking you to Rome. And Paul grabs a hold of this message of not looking back and looking forward. What does he say in Philippians 3, 13 and 14? He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me and straining forward for what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm leaving those things with the Lord, and he can bring results where he sees fit. I'm going to continue to look forward and say, Lord, use me. I'm going to testify. I'm going to share. I'm going to do what I can, and then I'm leaving all the rest of the results to you. And Paul will finish his race as he heads to Rome. That will be the end of his story on this earth. But until that time, he can be confident that nothing's going to stop him. This word from the Lord would be such an encouragement, a word that Paul would want to hold on to because Paul doesn't know everything that we're going to see through the rest of Acts. Even just his trip alone to Rome is going to have its fair share of trials and obstacles. Currently, he's abandoned in a cell, but what he doesn't know is right now there is a secret assassination awaiting him, that there's a shipwreck just around the corner. A poisonous snake is poised for the strike. But none of these things can avail the plans of God for Paul's life. And this is why he can be confident. Hey, God gave me a word. He's taking me to Rome. Then I'm going to Rome. I can be of good cheer. God used me how he wanted here, and he's going to use me there as well. Because God is for him, God is with him, and God is in control. That doesn't mean it will be easy. Don't make that mistake. Just because God's in control doesn't mean an easy life. We just mentioned a small list of the many things Paul's gone through in his life, all of which God were in control of and God will use for his glory. And in the midst of a myriad of what seems like failures and mistakes and disappointments in Paul's life, God is doing great things. May we be a people, as I invite the worship team to come back up, that don't define success and failures by our standards or circumstances. Look at your life through the lens of the Word of God. God is with you today, even in the midst of your disappointments, and He's a God who is over all of that. Maybe today what we need is is to refocus on what we're actually aiming at. What is the target we're going after? Is it to make a name for myself? Is it to get a following after myself? Is it to be comfortable or prosperous or any of these things? Or is it 
to do whatever the will of God may be for your life, to make much of him in every single moment wherever you go, and to be faithful as Paul was to testify wherever he gives you an opportunity to speak, to have that kind of attitude that says, Lord, just give me the opportunity. In line at the grocery store, I'm happy to. In the parking lot after church, Lord, I'm happy to. But Lord, wherever I find myself this week, this day, this moment, I want to speak of your goodness. I want to tell of your truth. I want to, I want to testify. And then I'll leave the results to you, God. Some will receive it. Some will reject it. Some will walk away unchanged. But God, I want to have a clean conscience. Lord, I want to be able to say like Paul that I did not hold anything back that was of profit, that I shared the whole counsel of the word of God with people. And not just to check a box in my walk with God, but because I love this God and this God loves me and I want people to know about him. I want people to understand the substance, the, the hope, the peace, the joy that's not found anywhere else. And if I can tell the person behind me in line at the store that Jesus has more for you and Jesus has a way out of all that for you and those disappointments and discouragements, it's because you're looking to something else other than Jesus for what only he can satisfy. And maybe this morning some of us need to readjust our focus. Maybe for some of us, we've never had that as the goal or the target at all. And for the first time, you need to start aiming your life towards what truly matters. But like Paul, I pray that we are a people, even in the midst of our cell, whatever it may be, in that place of discouragement, in that place of weakness, in that place of doubt and fear, that God would meet you in that place. That you would know that he's a God that stands by you and would say, be of good cheer. I'm using you, and I have plans for you. Let's pray. God, as we look at your word, Lord, I'm reminded of even so many times in my life, Lord, that I was disappointed. Lord, even times, if I'm being honest, that I was disappointed in you because I had the pride to think I had a better plan. I expected different results. Lord, and I know in a room like this that there are many who have felt the same, some who are even feeling the same today. Lord, that there are things they've prayed for you to take away that you haven't. And they're discouraged. Lord, there are those who thought their life would look so different today than it does and they're disappointed. God, they thought you had other things in store, Lord. They thought there was a different path forward. Lord, and maybe even for some of them, this has been a long time coming. Lord, that there's, there's lasting scars there of bitterness and separation and discouragement. Lord, I pray today that we could find healing by your Spirit. Lord, that we would humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Lord, that where there's pride, would you remove it in this moment? 
Lord, we realize your ways are far above our ways. Your thoughts are so much far above our thoughts. And one day we will get the privilege to stand before you and see you lay out the whole plan and we will understand and we will know and we will fear you and we will bow before you and we will worship you because your ways were so much better than ours and your plans were so much greater than ours and we will see how foolish we were to ever doubt God, I pray in this moment that you would not only bring healing from past disappointments, but God, that you would adjust all of our focuses, our gaze, Lord, that the gauge we look at life through, Lord, it would be shaped by your word. Lord, that we wouldn't allow the culture, culture around us to tell us what success looks like, what victory looks like, what satisfaction and peace and pleasure look like, but we would come to your word for that. And we would trust your word with that. And God, even when everything around us seems the opposite of what we thought you were doing, we will still hold fast because we know you are true. God, we know you are good. We know you are unfailing. You are the God that, that goes before us You're the author and finisher of our faith. You are the God who sees. You are the God who knows. You are a God who can sympathize with our weakness, Lord, and we trust even when we don't see. And Lord, I pray that we'd be a people that will obey even when we don't understand. And that you would be glorified. That your name would be magnified that all glory, all praise, and all honor would be to you as you deserve. And it's in your mighty name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.